0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now, in the programme this week, we've got a new self-adhesive tissue glue that could make stitches and staples a thing of the past. We'll also be hearing why the 150-year-old theory of why there are circles on a moth's wings is actually wrong, and atomic billiards. Scientists have managed to measure the force that's needed to drag individual atoms and molecules around on a surface, and they're saying it could be a big breakthrough when it comes to making the next generation of nano machines. That's all on the way. Cat.
2: Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're looking at new technology that's making life fun, easier and safer for all of us. We'll be hearing about a new system being pioneered in Australia to work out how old you are from just your photograph. Find out how it fared on the Naked Scientist team. We'll also be meeting the computer that can read and then paint your emotions. And we'll be delving into a new world inside the Internet. It's called Second Life, and Dave Taylor and Gordon Clark will be here to tell us all about it. Plus,
1: when you got rid of your last computer, did you delete everything from the hard drive? Or at least, did you think you deleted everything from the hard drive? Because the chances are that all of your personal details are still lurking there. And if you know how, you can probably get that data back. And we'll be talking to a forensic software expert who's called Graham Henley to find out how. Plus, in this week's Question of the Week, there's a decidedly strange smell in the air.
3: How accurate is my sense of bigness for smell? Well, I sense a very strong smell like rotten food... Does that mean there's a lot of this odor in the air? Or can my nose play tricks on me by being super sensitive to some smells that are actually tiny?
1: So the power of smells, and it's all coming up later on The Naked Scientists. If you'd like to get in touch with us, just email chris at the naked The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Well, let's kick off, as we always do, with a look at some of the hottest science news stories that have come out this week. And this one caught my eye, Cap, because scientists at MIT, this is Albert Smadawi and his colleagues, are building a new kind of tissue glue to replace stitches and staples, which is based actually on how a gecko clings to a surface.
2: Ah, oh, fascinating, because there's been so much talk of how geckos do this. I was wondering when applications would really start to come out.
1: Because if we just look for a moment on how a gecko does actually work, so to speak, if you focus in on his feet, then the ends of the gecko's feet are covered in tiny hairs. They're called CT. And at the end of each of these hairs, which are just nanometers across, are tiny swellings called spatulae. And they get so close to the surface the gecko is walking on that what are called van der Waals attractions, these electrical attractions, can occur between the surface of the gecko's foot and the surface it's walking on. And this holds him together. It generates quite a big force and can hold the gecko up.
2: They're basically atomic forces, aren't they? Between yep. atoms. Incredible. It's
1: van der Waals forces. And what these scientists have done is to build a mimic of that using a, a silicon wafer. A bit bit like you would build a microchip you just etch it to get what they've made are little tiny nanoscale hairs protruding from the surface of the silicon and they've smeared over that a a particular polymer which is called pgsa now that's short for polyglycerol co sabicate acrylate Uh, that's why they call it pgsa because it's quite complicated but you can cure this with a blast of uv light so you smear it onto your silicon wafer as your mold fix it in position with UV so that you then get your polymer actually fixed into the right shape with the gecko hairs. And then to make it sticky, they smear on another layer of a substance, which is a dextran, a sugar molecule, which has been oxidised to make it sticky. So that's a bit like having a slice of bread and then putting a layer of jam on the top and it's the jam that's sticky. And what they did was to test this in rats and they also tested it in the test tube. And one of the tests they did was to stick little discs about four millimetres across of this material onto a microscope slide, then they got strips of pig intestine tissue, stuck it on, and they had a force metre on the opposite end of the intestinal tissue, and they could work out how hard it would cling on to the intestinal tissue before it broke. And they found it would take just from a four millimetre... St- Across disc, they could get uh, the amount of force being held as it takes to lift up a small book. So it's very, very powerful attraction. Then, to see if it would work in vivo, so to speak, they implanted these discs into the abdominal wall of a, of a rat uh, and then looked to see if there are any signs of inflammation or problems and they saw minimal inflammation, which suggests it's very biocompatible. And where they say this could have big applications is that you could vary the recipe a little bit to get this material that breaks itself down in the natural conditions of the body, so it would be like self-dissolving stitches or glue. You wouldn't need to go in and take the stitches out. You could also hide in the matrix growth factors, which will make cells repair, and new blood vessels come in more quickly. Or you could put, say, antibiotics in there, and then it would prevent infection at the wound site too.
2: That sounds absolutely fantastic. Staying on the medical theme, but uh, moving to a different illness, um, we're talking about depression, which is nowadays often treated with drugs, but sometimes the effects of treatment can take many weeks to really work through and be effective, so there's an urgent need to find drugs that do act more quickly. Scientists are now turning to a drug called ketamine. Now, you may have heard of this in a slightly different context. It's a drug that's usually used as an anaesthetic by vets, and it's quite notorious for being abused by clubbers, as it causes hallucinations, another slightly weird effect.
1: This is Special K, isn't it? This
2: is, uh, yes, it's street name. You're very street there, Chris, is, is Special K. Um, but previous clinical trials have found that ketamine can actually work to relieve depression, and that works within hours. But there's actually, obviously, significant side effects. You're too
1: asleep to notice well, that you are...
2: And you might be hallucinating and all sorts of things so there's quite a lot of issues with using this drug as a a regular treatment but researchers in the US have actually discovered how ketamine exerts its effects on the brain of depressed patients and that could point towards newer drugs with fewer dodgy side effects in the future. Now ketamine acts on proteins in the brain called NMDA receptors and it blocks their action now Sung Ho Meng and his team have found that the drug's speedy antidepressant effects are actually due to the activity of another receptor and that's the AMPA receptor. So now that we know that the biological targets of ketamine are these two receptors, and now particularly the AMPA receptor, it's possible to start designing new drugs to target them effectively, but hopefully without seeing pink elephants along the way.
1: Any clues as to how long we think it'll take to find something that could do that?
2: Well this is still quite early biological studies so you have to go through all the drug development process but at least now we have a good target and there are some drugs that, that may be able to work on those AMPA receptors.
1: no idea why it works so much more quickly than other antidepressants?
2: Well it's because it's working with these two receptors together, the NMDA receptors and the AMPA receptors and that's what makes it so quick. So if you can find drugs that mimic that quick effect but without the weird side effects then that would be very effective.
1: Now how about the smallest game of billiards possibly in the known universe, this is an amazing thing do you remember in 1990 scientists at IBM made history when they managed to write the letters of their their company, IBM in atoms of xenon on a surface and it was published in a big prestigious science journal, it was on the front front cover and they said this is the future of nanotechnology well it's interesting that IBM scientist Marcus Turner and his colleagues and they're, they're working at IBM's Almaden Research Centre which is in San Jose in California they've done something which I think is every bit as elegant although not as visual which is they've used a technique called atomic force microscopy to drag individual atoms They were moving cobalt atoms around on a surface and they moved them either across a platinum surface or a surface of copper and they were able to measure how much force you needed to move an individual atom atom around on that surface and this is really important they say because understanding how atoms interact on surfaces is going to be absolutely fundamental to building m- tiny atomic scale machines of the future no nano machines and that kind of thing now the way they do it is by using this atomic force microscope this is rather like a tuning fork on a miniature scale with one of the prongs fixed and the other one vibrating very very fast 20,000 hertz and the end of it has this very tiny probe very very sharp tip And you can move the tuning fork closer and closer to the surface until you get to the point where the atoms at the tip of this point on the probe begin to interact with the atom that you're measuring and you get an electrical effect and this will affect how fast the probe will vibrate and you can record that so you can work out which atom because each individual atom has an individual specific effect on the probe and also you can work out how hard the atom is pushing back on you and they were therefore able by dragging the probe around to move atoms around on the surface material and they found for instance that materials are very different when they moved uh, this cobalt atom around on platinum it took 12 times more force than to slide it around on a copper surface for example so it's really intriguing and it means they can build up a profile of the surface they're moving the atoms around on and it looks like the atomic equivalent of an egg box you know how when you look at an egg box it's got wells where the eggs sit with the raised bits between so this energy landscape they can generate tells you where the atoms preferentially want to sit on the surface because if you imagine atoms as little footballs those wells are where there are several footballs abutting each other and there's a little dip on the surface, it's absolutely amazing
2: So if you were trying to kind of move atoms together you could line them up in the in the egg Well we're also understanding
1: away. how surfaces rub together so this is sort of friction on the atomic scale if you want to have something where a surface is going to have a good purchase against another surface, you'd use that choice of material, whereas if you want things to slide easily past each other with minimal loss of energy you'd use the other material
2: Well, if you'd told that to a biologist 150 years ago, they would have just thought you were crazy. Well, I think some people nowadays might think you're a bit crazy. But anyway, for 150 years, zoology students have dutifully learnt that the circular markings on animals, such as the so-called eye spots found on a butterfly's or a moth's wings, are there because they look like the eyes of that animal's predator. And it was thought that these eyes scare off anything hoping to have a quick snack. But now researchers at the University of Cambridge have made a discovery that totally overturns this idea. So
1: we're totally wrong.
2: Basically, we are. Yes, writing in the journal Behavioural Ecology, the researchers tested how wild birds reacted to moths made out of paper that were painted with an assortment of eye spots and shapes and pinned onto trees in woods near Cambridge, around here. Now, they tested spots of different shapes, sizes and numbers, and with different levels of similarity to the birds' eyes. And attached to each of the artificial moths was a little worm, and that was a temptation for the birds. And that We're talking sort of blue tits, great tits, blackbirds and house sparrows, to come and have a snack on these. These fake moths. Now, the scientists found that the artificial moths with circular markings, they didn't do any better than those with other conspicuous marks, such as bars or squares. Now, things don't have bar-shaped or square-shaped eyes, so that was a clue. And in fact, the team discovered that the predators were most put off by anything that was large shaped, you know, large shaped spots, a high number of spots, or if the markings were just generally very conspicuous. So it was
1: strong contrast. The black on the white was made them very conspicuous. Yeah,
2: it's anything that's conspicuous. So they think that actually in the wild these eye spots work not because they look like eyes but because they're just very conspicuous they're just big shapes that, that attract the eye of the predator and make them go Ooh, so yeah, why are don't they round then maybe that's the easiest way for for nature to make them that's that's the, the problem now we don't really know why
1: i guess that's food for thought Absolutely. Even if not for a bird. Thank you, Kat. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Kat Arney, and this week we're delving into new technology. On the way, we'll be seeing if we can fire up an iPod or an MP3 player using fruit as a battery. Stripping down science.
4: OK, let's do it.
1: The Naked
5: Scientists.
2: This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. Now, have your batteries ever run out while you're listening to The Naked Scientists on your MP3 player? Well, there's no need to panic because Ben and Dave may have the answer in this week's Kitchen Science.
6: Hello and welcome to Kitchen Science. We've had an email from Kimberly Palladino. She pointed out that there's a spoof video on YouTube of somebody charging their MP3 player using an onion. She realises it's a spoof, but she does know that you can use something like a potato or a lemon as a battery. So now I'm with Dave ansel and we're going to try and find out if you can actually use a lemon to charge your MP3 player. Hi, Dave. Hi there, Ben.
7: So is it true that you can create a battery from a lemon or perhaps a potato? You can make a battery out of any kind of fruit or vegetable. Basically, what you need to do is plug two different types of metal into the fruit, and you will get a battery out of it.
6: So when we eat fruit, we get energy from it, largely because of the sugar that's in the fruit. So do the two
7: different metals you put in convert the sugar to electricity? It's nothing to do with the sugar at all. It's all to do with the metals themselves. Some metals are more reactive than others. A reactive metal will release quite a lot of energy if it dissolves in a liquid, like the liquid inside the fruit. But to dissolve, it's got to lose some electron. It's got to become positively charged and turn into what's known as an ion. Now, These electrons have got to go somewhere. So if you put two nails into this fruit, say a galvanised iron nail, which has got zinc covering it, and a copper nail. So now the zinc is wanting to dissolve because it's a very active metal. And the copper's often got a bit of tarnish on the surface of it. So that's going to get dissolved by the acid in the fruit. So there'll be some copper ions floating around inside the fruit. So now if the zinc on the galvanised nail can dissolve, it's going to release some energy. To do that, it's got to get rid of some electrons, some negatively charged electrons. So if they can get round the copper and give them the positively charged copper ions, then that's going to release energy overall. So at the moment, there's no way of the electrons getting from the zinc to the copper. But if we complete the circuit, if we put something conductive across the two, that will happen really quite easily.
6: So why can't it just pass through the liquid in the fruit? Why do we need to complete the circuit?
7: Well, inside a fruit, there's all sorts of membranes. Um, These keep different areas of the fruit separate. So the easiest route for the electrons from the zinc to take would be through a circuit, which we can complete.
6: Okay, so electrons are going to flow from the zinc
7: nail through our circuit and into the copper nail. So how much voltage do you generate from this? Okay, so we can measure this using my multimeter, which is set to measure voltage.
6: Now, a multimeter is a little box about the size of a scientific calculator. It's got two probes on long wires that come off the end. And so, so what we do is complete the circuit with these probes, and we'll get a readout of what the voltage is.
7: Yeah, that's right. That's basically a measure of how hard the zinc's pushing those electrons around the circuit. It's reading
6: 0.929 volts. So it's nearly a volt.
7: Yeah, that's right. So all of these voltages are just set by the different kinds of metals. If you're going from zinc to copper, it's always going to be about a volt. If you're going from zinc to iron, it's going to be about half a volt.
6: So can we use this orange, copper and zinc battery to charge an MP3 player?
7: First thing you've got to do is produce enough voltage. Now, a lot of MP3 players charge from a USB connector, which uses 5 volts. So you'd have to string five of these little batteries together to make enough voltage. So we just put five copper nails and five zinc nails in one orange. Would that work? Um, It might work, but you'll probably end up with a very inefficient battery because you're going to mash everything up, there's going to be juice everywhere, and quite a lot of the current, instead of flowing through our wire, might end up flowing through the orange itself. So instead, do we need to set up lots and lots of oranges? That's what we're aiming to do, maybe five different fruits and vegetables. They don't have to be oranges, apples, potatoes, things like that will work. Five of those all in a line, and we should get enough voltage.
6: Excellent. Well, you've got a bag of oranges, and we've got two large bags of nails here, so I guess we better set all this up, and we will come back to you later on to let you know if we have been able to charge an MP3 player using only fruit and nails.
2: Thanks, Ben. Later on, we'll find out if their fruity battery really did work to charge an MP3 player.
1: But first, recently, there have been several news reports on the dangers that young people can face when they get onto the Internet. For example, there's some content that young people shouldn't be allowed to access in the first place, but how can a computer actually know the age of the person who's using it? Well, at the moment, it can't, but that could be all about to change.
0: I'm Kate Smith-Miles. I'm head of the School of Engineering and IT at Deakin University in Australia. We've been looking at... Are trying to get computers to be able to guess a person's age based on their face. This is a part of machine intelligence and there are lots of obvious applications. Is it very difficult to do that,
1: Kate? Because I would have thought that it's relatively easy just to build a big database of what faces look like at different ages and then compare them.
0: It is. The typical approach that others have taken is to have a, a database of faces with where you know their ages and to say, here's a face, this is the answer. Here's another face, this is the answer and get a computer model to learn the relationships. We've taken a slightly different approach and I think it's the reason that we're getting better performance than the existing methods. So we're taking photos of people at different ages in their life and we're getting the computer to learn what happens to the mathematical properties of the face over time.
1: But surely that's rather difficult because you've got to do a lifetime of tracking of an individual to see how they're going to change over say 70 years, aren't you? So how do you squash yes. 70 years into the, into the few years that you've actually been working on this?
0: Well, we're very lucky that there are some existing databases of about 600 people with maybe five photos each throughout their life. So we've got about 3,000 faces, so we're able to learn for a particular person what happens to the facial features over time.
1: So how does the program actually get to grips with a face? How does it take a face apart and work out what bits are what and, and how age affects those different bits of the face?
0: Yeah, well first of all we're working with with face images that are tightly cropped. So we're not looking at hair or ears or anything like that, just the, just the actual face region. We then have a sort of semi-manual process identifying landmark features around the face, so the corners of the eyes and the tip of the nose and the bottom of the chin. We've got 68 points around the face that we landmark, and then that of course is a series of numbers and then tell the computer here is a set of numbers for a certain face and this is how old the person is and we get a mathematical model to to learn the relationship between those inputs and the output.
1: So in other words how those different landmarks change relative to each other and relative to each over other time. over time yes. to then map out what, yes. what changes. How would you see this being used? What sorts of applications would it have in, in say the, the workplace and on the internet?
0: Well, one of the things that's attracting most attention at the moment with with our work is the applications in protecting children from adult material on the internet. For instance, I've got a a five-year-old daughter. I walked into the study one day as she was spinning around and asking me what our password was for an online dating agency. And I thought, how did she get to that? And I hit the back button on Google and she'd gone into Google and she typed, I want a friend. And up had popped a whole series of adult-related sites. Now the webcam was on, it would have been great if we had some software on the computer that had have recognised that she's just a child and when a child says I want a friend they mean a completely different thing to when an adult says it. So that's one application we're having a lot of conversations at the moment with ISPs. In Australia there's been some new legislation that was introduced last month that requires ISPs to be able to verify the age of a computer user prior to making access available of adult material and at the moment the way they do it is just with a pop-up question are you over 18? So I think there's a lot of applications of improved technology um, in helping to protect children from from these sorts of things. And then, of course, the applications with, you know, vending machines for cigarettes and things like that.
1: Well, you very kindly analysed some of the photos of us from the Naked Scientists. Uh, I've actually got them in a sealed envelope, so I haven't seen these. So I'm going to have a look <laughs> and see what you found when you looked at our mugshots that we sent to you. I hope we haven't
0: consulted anybody. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, let's find out. Okay, so you reckoned for Ben, 27, so that's not far off. Uh, Chris, that's me, 30. Now that's good because I'm actually 33, so you thought okay. I was a little bit younger. Dave, 35. Now Dave's actually in his uh, late 20s, so... Really? How do you explain the fact that Dave has been aged by so many years? <laughs> you know, he's, he's gained 18% more years than he really has, I think.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm looking at the photo now myself Compared to the 3,000 facial images that the computer model has been trained on, there's something in his face that he has some similarity with a 35-year-old. But, I don't know, maybe he didn't get much sleep the night before. I'm, I'm really not sure. We don't want to insult anybody.
1: Well, you can be my best friend because you actually thought I was younger than I am. So thank you very much for that.
0: But you must get that a lot. You must get people telling you that you look younger.
1: I do, actually. And it's really, it's really interesting that I think we you know why is that. Why do people think I look younger than I am? Do you have any insights into why some people actually do look their age and others don't?
0: No, I don't. I mean, obviously, humans have the advantage of looking at hair and body build and gesture and, and other things, uh, and voice as well. This computer was just looking at the face region alone, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if you're constantly hearing <laughs> that you look younger than you are and I don't know why, is it skin tone? You know there's a lot of things that, that our computer algorithm is not considering as well. Uh, humans are, I should say have a really hard time with this task. We rely very heavily on those additional factors. If you ask a human, if you give them a tightly cropped facial image and ask them to estimate how old somebody is, they're not very good at it, in fact our algorithm is better than the human subjects we tested. So we can we can predict um, the age with our computer algorithm to within about four years for adults and one year for children. And humans, the error is usually more like six years for adults.
1: So how long will it be before I can buy this and, and have this installed on my computer to stop my daughter at finding a friend that she shouldn't find online?
0: Mm. Uh, I'd say we're a couple of years off um, having a commercial product. Uh, there's a, a number of challenges that we still face. First of which is of course even identifying where the face is in the webcam shot and then there's the, the landmarking process, identifying all the facial features is a semi-automated process but we need to fully automate that. Uh, so there's a, a number of challenges that we're working towards at the moment.
1: I particularly like the way Dave turned out to be age 35.
2: <laughs> okay. He does look a little, I think it's the beard actually that gives it away. Dave hasn't got a beard. Well he's a bit beardy. I
1: think know. it's a stubble.
2: Yeah, you're yeah. a baby face anyway.
1: You're very polite. Well, anyway, that was Kate Smith-Miles. She's at Australia's Deakin University, and she's been developing this system to enable a computer to work out what age a user is just based on their mugshot. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists.
2: You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. Coming up later, we're going to be talking about how to recover data off your computer if, if it's done a complete whoopsie and has vanished with all your data. And uh, also we're going to be looking at science in second life. Some of us have enough problems with one life, but some people are, are trying to do science and scientific experiments in the virtual world, so that will be coming up later. Now, while Kate and her colleagues have been focusing on pinpointing the age of a computer user, other research groups around the world have been exploring the ways in which computers can be used to read a person's emotions now that's just not people swearing at the computer going ah give me back my data well no, it could uh, be <laughs> but it could well be uh, but actually by studying their facial expressions in a similar way so one place where this is happening is imperial college down in london and we sent mira sent the lingam down to find out how it works
8: the emotionally aware painting fall sounds exciting but what does it do well That's the name of the winning machine from the 2007 Machine Intelligence Awards. It's an artificial intelligence system that's made up of two pieces of software. The first is an emotion-detecting system that videos your face and analyses it to see what emotion you're feeling. The second part produces an abstract painting of you on the screen, using colours and styles to reflect the emotion that it thinks you're feeling. These combine to produce a system that could revolutionise the art world, either by giving artists some competition or helping them to design their masterpieces. Now, I met up with the creators Simon Colton, Michelle Valstar and Maya Pantic this week to find out more and also to see what emotions the machine thought I was feeling. I spoke to Maya first about how the emotionally aware painting fall works.
9: It is a system which is uh, combined of two systems. One is the visual part of the system and the other one is the painting part. The visual part detects automatically the emotion of the sitter from a live video, while the painting part of the system uses this information in order to chooses the paints and then highlights this emotion in the painting of the sitter. And
8: when you say sitter, you just mean the person standing in front of the video? Exactly. Okay, so you've already set up the equipment ready for me to have a go. So uh, I'm just going to go and stand in front of it and portray my emotions. They've taken a video clip of me looking neutral and then smiling afterwards. And now the first part of the machine is processing it. What's going on, Michelle?
10: At this point, it has found exactly where in the first frame your face is. And next, it will find uh, 20 facial points, such as the points on your eyebrows, the corners of your mouth, and the corners of your eyes.
8: It's saying, I'm very happy. So how's it found that out?
10: Basically, we tracked those 20 points through the image sequence... And based on the distances between the points and the positions of the points and the speeds of those points, we found out which facial muscles you were using.
8: So once you know the facial muscles in use, how does this then translate to it knowing the emotion, Maya?
9: We are trying to detect six basic emotions, which are surprise, fear, sadness, happiness, anger and disgust. For each of these emotions, there are certain facial muscles which are activated. For surprise, your eyebrows are raised, and your eyes are wide open, and your mouth is wide open. So based on these kind of rules, we are able to recognize which emotion is shown in an image. And in this case, as can be expected, the smile triggered actually happiness. At this point, as you see, the painting fool will start its work.
8: Okay, yes, so it has started painting me now. So, Simon, how is it producing this painting?
4: Well, it's been given three important pieces of information from the vision software. It's been given the um, emotion, happiness. It's been told where the eyes, nose and mouth are. And it's been told which picture within the video sequence were you expressing your emotion the best, where were you smiling the most. First of all, it's going to paint that picture. It's going to spend more detail on your eyes, nose and mouth, so it makes it look more like you and it's going to choose its painting style according to the happiness emotion. It's turned your face into a number of regions of colour. Then for each paint region, it chooses the colour for that paint region, It chooses whether to enlarge or make it smaller. It can do that with the eyes for example, to to emphasise the emotion in the eyes and it chooses how to simulate the painting in of that paint region.
8: If someone else was to have stood in front of that camera would these colours still have come up? I've
4: trained it specifically to use a colour palette of about 15 colours, all of which are bright and it does use different ones depending on the facial colours of the person um, using it. The bigger difference would have been had you um, not smiled and had you shown fear or had you shown disgust, it would have produced a completely different picture. It would have stretched your face, it would have painted you in greys and kind of rotten kind of tones and it would have used a very loose painting style so that it would really emphasise the distortion of the face.
8: How have you given it the information so that it knows how to appreciate its subject?
4: I trained it like a human painter would train an apprentice. So I've told it, for example, that if it uses greens and reds, and that's likely to heighten the anger in a picture. I've told it that if it uses a stretched face, then certain people will associate that with Edvard Munch's The Scream, that famous painting um, where there's disgust going on in there. What I'm aiming for more with this is it to get the software accepted as a creative artist in its own right, independent of me as a software originator. Next thing I want it to do is to imagine completely new scenes and paint from its imagination...
8: You have obviously combined together for this project and created the Emotionally Aware Painting Fall. So where do you want to continue this merger, Michel?
10: Well, what I think we uh, want to do is make it even more aware of its subject matter. There is so much more information in the face that we could use. For instance, gender. We could paint it differently depending on whether it's a a man or a woman. But also uh, maybe age category. And even we might look into uh, beauty aspects of the face.
8: My painting is now finished. And considering how abstract it is, it really does look like me, I think. But also, you can tell that that's a girl. How will you make it distinguish between males and females even more?
10: Of course, it looks like you because it's, been, it's based on your portrait, on your image. And therefore, it will always resemble a girl. But we could actually enhance the feeling that you get when you look at the painting if we know what the actual gender of the sitter was.
2: And that was Naked Scientist Mira talking to Maya Pantic, Michael Valstar and Simon Colton about their Emotionally Aware Painting Fool, which is a piece of software that can divine your emotions while you're uh, working on the computer. And coming up later, we'll be finding about something that does uh, engender quite very strong emotions, and that's losing your data. We'll be finding out if you can recover that. Uh, but now, we have some very exciting guests in the studio.
1: Yes, yeah, some people say... Why don't you go and get a first life before worrying about your second life? But in fact, second life is a phenomenon on the internet where there's a whole virtual world. And we've got two pioneers of second life who've done some great stuff with what's happening in in terms of the science that you'll find in second life with us today. And that's Gordon Clark, and he's a researcher and he's based at the National Physical Laboratory where he's doing all this work. And also Dave Taylor from Imperial College London. Let's kick off first of all with Dave. So Dave, what actually is second life, first of all?
11: Well, Second Life is a, a three-dimensional virtual world um, made of islands, which can either be stand-alone or join together into uh, continents. Um, much of Second Life is to do with um, social things and um, entertainment, but there is a serious side, and there are a lot of scientists in Second Life and technologists who meet, um, meet, uh, collaborate, uh, attend meetings, hold discussions. How does it work? What's the actual interface? How do people get into Second Life? Well, you you have to run a specialised browser, which you can download from secondlife.com or from silence.org. It's free, isn't it? It's free, yes, that's right. But you can't use a web browser. Uh, and that basically gives you a view into this virtual world, which is currently, I think, about 15 times the size of Manhattan. So there's a lot there.
1: Uh, well, wow, that is quite large. So if someone were to appear there, or they went on, what would they see? How would they sort of be incarnated in this second life?
5: Well, you have a great deal of choice about what you look like. Uh, you can get to choose, if you're male or female, you can get to choose what your clothing is, uh, your your hair colour, everything like that. that uh, is totally customisable, and it's up to you what you look like. So this could be quite good for people who don't really
1: want to look the way they do. If they feel a bit intimidated about interacting with people in real life, then they can have all the interactions, because you can presumably talk and exchange messages with people in Second Life, but you don't have to look... uh, Like yourself, basically.
11: Yeah, that's right. I think there's two groups, really. People who uh, like to look a little bit like themselves and people who want to look completely different from themselves. (laughs) So what do you look like? (laughs) uh, I I look kind of similar to
5: myself. Uh, So so do I,
11: yes. (laughs) Uh, A bit, but quite a bit younger, I think. Mm, about right. So would you fool <laughs> um, Kate Smith-Miles'
1: software that we were talking about earlier with your... Because um, it's called an avatar, isn't it? They yes, through right. The person you create. So when, when you're wandering around in Second Life, you're actually wandering around as you see yourself as a person in there.
11: That's right. And, of course, other people. So um, immediately you get person-to-person interaction, which you don't normally get when you're staring into a computer screen. And... What about
1: if you want to converse with someone? We're having a chat, we've got eye contact, so if I was in Second Life as a person, I'd be able to see myself and say, Dr Cat here, or you guys, I could see you there, and if we wanted to
11: talk, what would happen? Well, you can type, um, and and some people are a little bit too shy to speak, so they're quite happy typing. Uh, You can give private messages to one another Mm -hmm. as well. But as you type, the words that you're typing come up above your head. Uh, so, uh, but, or you can speak. So oh, real speak! Spe- yeah, absolutely. It's like Skype on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that? Because it's, uh, it's three-dimensional sound. So if somebody's on the left, you hear them on the left. If they walk towards you, they'll get louder. Um, but wow. uh, unlike the real world, um, you can actually move your point of view, and your ear goes with your eye, as it were, so you can listen to that group in the corner and see what they...
1: Well, let's, l- let's look at the sort of science that's going on in there, because this sounds like an amazing tool to do science with as well. So what sorts of projects are going on in, at the moment to get the message about science across?
5: Well, I think you have to remember that when you when you go in-world, when you go into Second Life, everything you see has been created by one of the other avatars. Uh, it's the users that create everything. So if you want to do something scientific, you take your experiment or your, your design, whatever it is, and you go in-world and you build it. You can build um, anything from... Uh, there's a Mars impact simulator, which is brilliant, because you have a, this asteroid comes down out of the sky and hits the ground in front of you, and there's debris and flames flying everywhere, and a big crater forms. Um, you can you go can... on a ride to the planet.
11: And, so, who, um,
1: who, who hosts you? Is that Richard Branson and Virgin, or is it <laughs> existing character? No, he, he's not in there yet. <laughs>
11: So who no, takes, actually, who takes you the, to the
1: planets then? Uh,
11: the International Space Flight Museum has got right. uh, this ride to the planets and it's a Gemini rocket. You just hop in the rocket and you launch yourself.
1: And, and how realistic is this? You, is it a scientifically realistic and reasonable that you're not bending scientific rules to do this? And, and also, is it a, a valid educational experience? It, people learn something by doing this?
11: Absolutely, yes, it's a valid... Edu- uh, I mean, the, the, the trip to the planets takes you past the International Space Station, you can have a look at the space shuttle... Uh, You can uh, visit the planets. You can even visit the surface of Mars and see some of the vehicles that have landed there.
5: Yeah. And uh, last week I took a trip around uh, a testicle. Um, (laughs) And it was (laughs) (laughs) a... What? Well, quite. Um... I'm not going to repeat that again, um, but it was looking at uh, spermatogenesis. You know, the, the formation of sperm within the testicle. And so
1: what you, you can actually see. So it's in big, sort of blown up. Oh yeah, it's, you know, it's, huge. it's almost like
5: walking through the body. Yeah, and the uh, millennium you, sit, zone. you sat in a little flying car that guided you through all the various ducts, and you could. So that could be actually be very good for learning anatomy if you're a medical student or something. I'm yeah, sure. I mean it was very accurate. What um, about? Um, you know, how do
1: you see this being extended? Because I mean, one of the things that one of the reasons that you're here today is because you phoned me up uh, a while back to say, look, you think there could be some possibility for the naked scientists getting involved with this. So we actually did start to talk and we've done some stuff. So tell us a bit about actually what yeah, that, you have in mind
11: with this. Well, it's great fun attending meetings in Second Life with other people. Mm. There's a lot of repartee in the audience. There's a lot of people who help to explain things to other people. So actually listening to a radio show together. Uh, is a great activity to do in Second Life. So we thought you could do with a studio audience and um, you can have one in Second Life. So take us on a sort of virtual
1: radio tour of what you've set up in Second Life for the Naked Scientists, Gordon.
5: Well, um, we're, we're part of a, a group of islands called The Silence. And right in the centre of The Silence, uh, we have built you a radio theatre. It's rather a fetching building with a radio mass sticking out of it and your the name Naked Scientists uh, rotating in, in bright purple at the moment uh, above it. And people can... They can, well, actually, I, I know there's some people there just now uh, listening to a test transmission, so I'd just like to say hi to, to Troy and all the, all the other guys out there. Hi, Troy. Um, and people can just they can sit, they can relax, they can listen to the radio show, and they talk to each other. You know, there's a lot of text chatter going on during so this. So this
1: is just like, in, so you get the Naked Scientist radio show there, so it's live. You know, we're, we're piling it out of here and straight into there, so people who go there can hear it once it's all running, but they're also able to talk to each other while the show's on, so they can have a sort of mini-discussion. It's a bit like Oprah Winfrey, I suppose, but on, on yes. the Naked yeah. Scientist,
5: isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I went to uh, a, another radio show uh, last week, and uh, I ended up having quite an involved discussion on the philosophy of science. So, uh, the,
11: yeah. the, uh, the interesting thing is that a lot of, co- of course, can come out of people from different disciplines meeting and, discu- and, and having corridor discussions. So where there aren't corridors in the real world, we've kind of built these corridors in Second Life. And you, um, um, for example, um, two organizations that normally wouldn't have got together, the University of Denver and the National Physical Laboratory, we were sort of having an neighborly discussion. We decided we should build a nuclear reactor in Second Life. And that's a project that's now off the ground as an Anglo-American collaboration.
1: And when you say build a nuclear reactor, this presumably models a nuclear reactor so people can go in there, see what it looks like and see how it works.
11: Yes, and we're modelling a specific scientific experiment so again the students don't have to be exposed to radiation, they can do the experiments in safety. And <laughs> Just get... the X-radiation from their computer screen that they're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> or an
1: LCD maybe. Not. Brilliant. Well if, if uh, people want to, to, to come and have a look at the Naked Scientist in Second Life, Gordon, and, and even listen on a Sunday, how would they do that?
5: Um, well, as Dave said, they, they would need to, to download uh, the Second Life viewer and register their own avatar. Um, and then they need to search for Scilands, which is S-C-I-L-A-N-D-S. Well, even easier, if they actually uh, register at
11: silands.org and download from there, then they will appear in the middle of the silands mm. right next to where your show will be broadcast from. And they have a 10 minute orientation to so find out how to move around as an avatar, how to speak to people, how to listen, and so on.
1: Absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much to Gordon Clark and David Taylor for an introduction to Naked Second Life. Thanks, guys. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I do have enough problems in my first life with uh, but it might be worth joining a second life if i could crawl through a giant testicle very very tempted anyway still to come we're going to find out if dave and ben did ever manage to charge an mp3 player using just fruit and in question of the week we'll discover quite how selective your sense of smell is but first have you ever lost important photos or documents because you've deleted the wrong folder Ah! anyway here's ben with a solution
6: Many of us rely on using computers to store an awful lot of vitally important information, and there's nothing like the heart-sinking feeling of realising you've deleted the wrong file, or even worse, you turn on the computer to be greeted with an error message saying no bootable partition, meaning your hard drive is completely dead. But there may be a way that you can get back that data, even the things that you thought you deleted on purpose. On the line with me now is Graham Henley from getdata.com. So, Graham, firstly, how is data actually stored on a hard disk?
3: Well, Ben, a hard drive is, is a magnetic medium, so basically, as we all know, it's stored in ones and zeros on the drive. Now, when a file gets stored on a computer, essentially there's a table at the start of the hard disk. The table tells the operating system, Windows, whereabouts that file is stored on the disk. So when you press the delete button, or in fact format your drive, what you're doing is going to that table at the start of the disk and telling the computer that that particular reference, that file in that table, is no longer there. It doesn't go out to the disk itself, find the data and override it.
6: So although Windows no longer knows where to look, if you were to actually look through the hard disk itself, you'd be able to find all of the files that you thought you'd formatted away?
3: Yeah, that's right. It's essentially like going to the index of a book and then taking a pen and scrubbing out one of the index entries. The page with all the content is still out there in the middle of the book, it's just that the the book no longer knows how to find it. But you can imagine all that data is still out there on the disk and still can be recovered.
6: So what about when it seems that your hard drive has died, even if the actual contents effectively is still there and you've still got the index file at the beginning of it? If you can't get your hard drive to work, then surely you can't get to that data.
3: Sure. Look, there's two types of data recovery. If you have a physical problem with your hard drive, and hard drives do physically fail, they wear out, bits get old and and worn out, then your only hope to get data back from that is to send it to a hardware recovery service. But probably 60 or 70% of the time, the problems with having lost data or deleted files is usually what we call a logical problem. That means that the drive is physically functioning okay. It's just that the logic of how the files are found or where the files are on the disk has somehow been screwed up.
6: Okay, so how do you go about getting back the data that we think we've deleted?
3: Well, our program, Recover My Files, it goes out to the drive and it does three levels of search. The first type of search it can do is look for a petition. Now, petition is a fancy word for what we describe as the C drive or the D drive or the E drive. And what it's trying to find is that big index full of files. So it finds that index, it interprets it, and it displays all the files. Now, the next step down from that is every single file on that computer inside that table at the start of the disk has an entry, and that entry tells the computer the name of the file and the storage sectors on the disk where that file resides. But in in many cases, too, all that information has been destroyed. You might have somehow overwritten that first part of your disk and corrupted all of that information. So the very lowest level of search that Recover My Files does is it goes across the drive and it tries to uh, find individual files on the drive by their header and their footer. Every Microsoft Word document starts in a particular way. At the start of the file, there's certain characters that can easily be identified We identify the start of the file, we look for the structure of the file, and then we identify the footer of the file, and so we can still bring that out and display it as a file, and you can still see pictures, documents, and all your other types of files.
6: But doesn't this mean that if you sell off your old computer or your old hard drive, then people can use this software, such as Identity Thieves could use it, and actually get back your files, which may contain your bank details or uh, your passport information, that sort of thing?
3: If you're ever in a situation where you want to give away a hard drive, it's very important that you have to wipe the hard drive clean. When you delete a file, it's recoverable and it'll stay on your drive, but it'll only stay there up until such time as it's been overwritten with something else. You need to deliberately go out and wipe that hard drive clean. And the wiping programs that are available, and we sell one on our website at WipemyFiles.com, They go out and they start at the beginning of the drive and write zeros all the way across the drive right to the very end. And that's what's meant by wiping a drive. If you just format your drives and you're giving away, that doesn't do it. All your data is still in the drive. It's a real security risk.
6: Now, I understand that you used to work with the police doing their data recovery from seized computers. So did you just use the same techniques there, or do you have to go a bit more forensic when looking for evidence of a crime?
3: Myself and one of my colleagues were in the Australian Federal Police here in Australia. We worked in the computer crime section, and we were obviously involved in in very high-profile and complex investigations involving computer evidence. And really the way our company got started is that we were having to write our own applications in order to go out and interpret data on a hard drive and to recover deleted files.
6: And are criminals savvy enough with computers to make sure they do actually wipe their data?
3: I've examined drives and found that they've employed a wiping tool. In one particular case, we could see that the person had overwritten the data before we'd arrived, and I could see in the storage sectors were the words sucked in all the way across the drive. So, <laughs> deliberately gone out and, and wiped it clean and left a message there for us.
6: So, criminals are obviously paying attention, they know how to wipe their drives. What about uh, government institutions and so on? Could you go out, buy a load of second-hand hard drives and get some really juicy data out from that?
3: It's an interesting exercise to go to a second-hand computer market, pick up some hard drives and then recover my, run, recover my files. It's just incredible what you can bring back. And of course, they're not just the files that are on there, but if you imagine when you're surfing the web, all your web pages are being brought down and stored on your computer. If you do web banking, for example, you can see balances and transactions, etc., in those web pages.
6: So I guess the moral of this is that don't panic if you do delete something you didn't intend to, but do make sure you wipe your hard drive completely clean before selling it on.
3: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely the information that can be tamed on a hard drive about someone's life is uh, is incredible. So if you're ever sending a hard drive on, then you definitely should wipe it.
2: Well, that's some pretty good advice there from Graham Henley of getdata.com about how to protect yourself. And I'm starting to get worried now because I had a laptop stolen. Uh, I'm quite worried about all my personal data and banking details being out there.
1: Should we send a copy of his program to the Inland Revenue? Yeah. Just on the off chance that <laughs> they need it. So I think they probably need a copy.
2: They could definitely do with it.
1: Right, thank you very much, Kat. Now, it's time for this week's question of the week. That's coming up in just a second. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Kat, Diana. We've been talking about new technology and how it can affect your life this week, and in a second we'll be answering a very smelly question and also finding out whether Ben and Dave did succeed to charge their MP3 player just using fruit as a source of power. And it is that time of the week when Diana joins us to talk about this week's question of the week. Are you someone who's been reeling from data loss in the past, Diana?
12: Um, It has happened a couple of times, yeah. I don't want to think about it. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, um, this week we've got another smelly question
3: for you. Hi, I'm John Montserrat from Cambridge, Mass in the USA. When I hear music, I have a perception in my brain about how noisy it is. Uh, Loud things always feel loud to me. And quiet things always seem quiet, of course. It doesn't matter whether it's a high note or a low note or a trumpet or a piano. My sense of how big the noise is is always accurate. So my question is, how accurate is my sense of bigness for smell? When I sense a very strong smell like rotten food, does that mean there's a lot of this odor in the air? Or can my nose play tricks on me by being super sensitive to
13: some smells that are actually tiny?
12: So how do the naked scientists smell? Let's find out.
13: Hello, this is Greg Jeffries from the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology here to answer a question today about whether we can smell some smells better than others. And the simple answer to that is yes, and I'll try and explain a little bit why that is. So if you're thinking about some signal in the outside world, there are two steps probably that you could divide the process up into. The first is actually taking the signal and turning it into an electrical signal inside your body And the second is the brain then processing it and telling you about it. So we'll call the second step perception and we'll assume that you're really interested in this signal. And so we'll basically put that aside. So what's going to determine how sensitive to the signal you are is really this detection step, this sensory detection step. What you have are specialized detectors at the top of the nose. These are protein receptors. And the way they actually signal a smell is that a smell consists of odor molecules diffusing about in the air, and they come up to the top of the nose and bind to these protein receptors. Now, they don't just bind to any old receptor. There's sort of a lock and key fit between the smelly molecule and the receptor. And so if you don't have receptors which can fit with a particular molecule, then you won't smell it. Now, over time, uh, evolutionary time, that is, we've acquired receptors that fit very well with odor molecules that we might be interested in. One example of um, a smell that we're very sensitive to is mercaptan, that's put in natural gas so that we can detect a gas leak. And it takes only one part per billion, uh, even less than that, for us to actually detect that smell. So to put that in another context, that's more or less the same as three do- drops of smell Uh, in a volume the size of an Olympic swimming pool, and we could detect that. Of course, there are plenty of other odours to which we're much less sensitive, and so uh, the questioner is quite right that there are some smells which we're very sensitive to
12: it seems we're particularly sensitive to certain smells I know I'm definitely very sensitive to the smell of cake and chocolate
2: now on the forum on nakedscientist.com, soul surfer has come up with this answer and he says the sense of smell is a differential sense you tend to notice new and increasing smells and ignore ones that are static and some smells are quite dangerous because of this hydrogen sulfide that's the smell of rotten eggs mm uh, if it's particularly strong rapidly your sense of smell when it reaches dangerous concentrations you don't actually smell it at all.
12: Anyway, next week we're going to be looking at gases in caves.
10: Hello, my name is Evgeny Padolski. I'm doing my PhD in Japan. Recently, after spending a few days underground in a cave, I became anxious about the following question. As I know, soluble rocks like limestone are soluble in a water containing CO2 which comes from the atmosphere. This takes about 30 centimeters of rock every two millenniums. But if we take into account the present high amount of CO2 in the air, can we claim that nowadays caves are growing much faster than ever before in history? Thank you.
12: And then I've got a really, really hairy one to deal with.
3: Hey, this is Jay Rizal from Boone, North Carolina. And um, I was wondering if not cutting your hair and or washing it makes it grow any slower
12: so if you know what the best gas is for a cave or what you should do with the hair you don't really like then please email me with question of the week at thenakedscientist.com or write a note on our forum at thenakedscientist.com
2: forward slash forum
1: thank you very much diana that's diana o'carroll from the naked scientists with this week's question of the week
2: you're listening to the naked scientists with dr chris and dr cat now they managed to get one volt from an orange but can they charge an mp3 player here's ben and dave
6: Hello and welcome back to Kitchen Science. Now we are trying to find out today if you can charge an MP3 player using fruit and nails. And we left you earlier when we'd shown that we could make a one volt battery using one orange. And what we've now done is set up a load of different fruits to try and get enough energy to charge my MP3 player. As you can see, you've got four apples and two oranges all set up in a loop there, and each one has got two zinc nails and two copper nails set into it. So why have we got two of each type of nail in each piece of fruit? Well,
7: there's two major things with electric current. One is the voltage, which is how hard it's being pushed around the circuit. The other one is how much electric current is flowing. And these batteries are very limited in the amount of current they can produce. So I've used two zinc nails and two copper nails in each fruit to try and double the amount of current that it can produce.
6: So although we'd still get the same voltage from one piece of fruit, that's how hard the electrons are being pushed, by putting twice as many nails we're actually getting twice as many electrons being
7: pushed through the circuit. That's right, so hopefully the MP3 player is slightly more likely to notice that it's here. Okay, fantastic. Well, we have also adapted a USB cable
6: so that we can actually plug in my MP3 player and see what we get. So, Dave, what have we had to do
7: here to adapt the cable? We have basically, by adapt, you mean we've chopped it in half there's four wires inside of it two of them carry power and two of them carry signal to carry the messages along the usb cable so i've worked out which ones carry the power which one's positive which one's negative we should be able to just connect up to the battery so now with all of this connected the only thing left is to plug in
6: my mp3 player and see if it starts charging so i've got the other end of the usb cable here and i'm going to plug it in here we go nothing's happened dave
9: Yes, this isn't ideal, is it?
6: But we checked with the multimeter, and it said that there was 5 volts coming out. So why isn't it charging my MP3 player?
7: Well, probably what the problem is, that this battery at the moment can't produce enough current whilst still producing enough voltage. Because the nails are actually quite a long way apart inside the fruit, and the area of contact for a battery is relatively small, the amount of current it can produce whilst keeping the same voltage is very small. Or it could just have gone flat. So when you say it's gone flat, do you mean just like a normal battery, it's gone flat? Yeah, basically, if it's used up all of the copper ions which are floating around inside the fruit, then it can't produce any more energy. So what can we do to try and get my MP3 player charging? We could replace all the copper nails with some new ones which have still got some tarnish on them. And we could probably add a couple more pieces of fruit, so there's a little bit more voltage there to start with. OK, so I guess we better add a few more bits of fruit to our circuit. Back very soon.
6: OK, this is our second and final attempt now. We've completely covered the plate with different fruit. It's all wired up correctly. Dave, are we ready to go? We'll see what happens. OK, then, let's plug it in. Yes! The startup logo has just come on the screen of my MP3 player, and any minute now it will confirm to us whether or not it's charging. The lights have come on,
4: and it's charging
6: (laughs) with a plate full of fruit, all with copper and zinc nails, and we have managed to get
7: my MP3 player to successfully charge. So, yes, it can be done. We have got 12 pieces of fruit with four (laughs) nails at each, and it just about charges the MP3 player. I'm assuming it's probably not going to give it a full charge. But, uh, but Dave, how long could this last for? Well, the first major problem with this battery is it produces about a tenth of a milliamp. So that's about a ten thousandth of an amp of current. Which means to charge charge your battery is probably going to take about 5,000 hours. That's quite a long time. It normally
6: charges when I plug
7: it into the mains in
6: about two and a half hours. To be honest, I think that almost defies the point of it being a portable
7: device. So, OK, so the current is too low to charge it quickly. Um, do you think it would actually fill the battery? I think probably you're going to run out of copper oxide on the copper nails within probably at the most of half an hour, a couple of hours at this rate of charging. So it probably wouldn't even work very well then. So we have proved, in
6: principle, that you can plug in and charge an MP3 player using a pile of fruit and some copper and zinc nails, but to be honest, it's probably easier and quicker just to plug it into the mains. That's all for Kitchen Science this week. See you again soon.
2: So there you have it. It really does work, uh, provided you have enough nails, enough fruit and a long, long time on your hands. Have a look at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science and we'll show you how it works in pictures.
1: Then, Kat, quick question here, Kat, for you from Misha, and she says, I'm pale-skinned, red-headed, and I burn very easily. Since I'm prone to sunburn, am I therefore more likely to get skin cancer?
2: Yes, you are. People who do burn and freckle more easily in the sun are more likely to get skin cancer. It's very important. The, fa- the fairer you are, the more likely you burn, um, the more you should take care in the sun, definitely.
1: So, apart from just avoiding the sun, anything else?
2: Um, avoid the sun, cover up, and uh, slap on the factor 15.
1: Thank you very much. Right, well that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much to everyone for listening to us and also to Kate Smith-Miles, Graham Henley, the guys who talk about Second Life, that's Dave Taylor and Gordon clark and also the Painting Full team who talked to Mira and painted her at Imperial College in London. Also our wonderful production team, Mira Sinterlingham, Petra Minch and Ben Valsler. We're back next week talking about the science of sound and music. Do try and join us. Good night.
5: The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.